Election night, 2000. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sandra O'Connor and her husband John are watching the returns at a party at a friend's house. When the networks initially call Florida for Democrat Al Gore, O'Connor looks upset and agitated. This is terrible, one of those present recalled her saying. That means it's over. She gets up and walks out. Her husband John confides to the partygoers that his wife had been hoping to retire, but wouldn't do so if a Democrat was going to nominate her successor. That anecdote, first reported in Newsweek magazine more than 18 years ago, would very soon take on great significance when just a few weeks later, O'Connor joined with four other conservative Supreme Court justices to stop the Florida recount then underway, handing George W. Bush the presidency. It was perhaps the most consequential case of O'Connor's trailblazing tenure on the Supreme Court, fleshed out with new details by author Evan Thomas in his new biography of O'Connor, First. As Thomas tells it, O'Connor agreed to join the court's conservative majority, not because of her partisan leanings, but because she convinced herself that a continued recount would result in political chaos that would further divide the country. But it was a decision, Thomas reveals, that she would soon regret, and even told one of her clerks so. Maybe the court should have said, we're not going to take it, goodbye, she said more than a decade after the Bush versus Gore decision. We'll discuss O'Connor's role in that case and her larger contributions to the court and to American women in general with Evan Thomas himself on this episode of Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. All right, we're joined now by Evan Thomas, our old boss at Newsweek magazine and extraordinary editor and writer, who just launched his new book, First, a biography of Sandra Day O'Connor, an intimate portrait of the first woman Supreme Court justice. Evan, congratulations and welcome to Buried Treasure. Thank you, Danny. Hi, Mike. Hey there, Evan. So the obvious question to start, and we're going to get into the most controversial case of her career, Bush versus Gore. By the way, we all worked together at Newsweek during that crazy overtime period, uh, which we'll be talking about. But so the obvious question is, why SOC, Sandra Day O'Connor, instead of RBG? Because RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, is having her pop culture moment. Uh, two movies, movie, not just one, two but movies, two. Two movies made about her. I mean, my daughters, you know, are getting dolls of Ruth Bader yeah. Ginsburg. She's, you know, T-shirts. So she's the sort of feminist icon of the moment. Why yeah. Sandra Day O'Connor? Ginsburg is a feminist icon. That's that's all true. Those movies are great. But O'Connor was there 12 years earlier. I mean, she really was first. And she's a very different kind of justice. Ginsburg is an activist. She's in dissent a lot. O'Connor controlled the court, had the real power. O'Connor was the fifth vote, the decisive vote, in 330 cases over 25 years. It was O'Connor, not Ginsburg, who kept alive abortion rights. It was O'Connor, not Ginsburg, who kept alive affirmative action, the two big things that the court deals with. 
she was an incredible power and she understood power. She was a politician. She was the last, actually, O'Connor was the last justice who'd run for office, who'd had to get votes, who'd been in a state legislature, who'd been an assistant state attorney general, who knew the real world of power and politics. And she used that knowledge. And just really quickly, I think that's a really crucial point. And I imagine that her experience as a legislator and a politician shaped her judicial philosophy. Just tell us briefly how. Extremely pragmatic. What's the impact of this decision? You know, justices spend a lot of time spinning great theories of the law, and they have their place. You have to have, you know, doctrine and jurisprudence, all that. But O'Connor's view was, how is this going to affect real people? She really cared about that. It's a sinful thing to say in the law that you're result-oriented, that you're unprincipled. She was not unprincipled. She had principles, real principles. But she cared about the outcome of cases, and she didn't want the court either getting too far ahead of public opinion or too far behind public opinion. And she worried about unintended consequences. Often her decisions were quite limited, narrow, fact-based. She didn't want to get the court too far out there and create all sorts of problems they hadn't even thought about. I always assumed, at least in her early days, she was from Arizona during the era of Barry Goldwater. She dated and was close to Rehnquist. You know, Reagan nominates her to the Supreme Court that she actually was more ideological, at least in her early days. But in your book, you point out that that was not necessarily the case, despite all A little bit, a little bit, Mike. I mean, yeah. she drifted left. Uh, she was more, she, uh, I think, think she voted for the Rehnquist on uh, 85% of, at the very beginning. She was a, uh, what they call, she believed in federalism, which is to say, to use the word states' rights. Nobody likes the word states' rights because it smacks of the Confederacy. But she mm-hmm. believed that the states did have some powers that the Warren court had gone too far in kind of squashing the states and advancing executive and federal power. So she was with the conservatives on kind of rolling back an activist liberal judiciary. Yes, she was, in the first, especially in the first decade. But over time, she moved a little bit to the left. She was sensitive, unsurprisingly, sensitive to women's issues and sensitive to children. And on those cases, she tended to be a little bit more liberal than she might otherwise have been. So, yeah, she was a Goldwater Republican, although even that's a little complicated because we think of Goldwater and we think of that famous line that extremism and the defense of liberty is no vice. Goldwater's 64 speech. To be a Goldwater Republican in Arizona was something different. It was to be a reformer. The Democrats were corrupt. In Arizona, Mm -hmm. the corrupt party were the Democrats. The Republicans were the reformers. And so it had a different meaning to be a Goldwater Republican in Arizona. The Federalist principles uh, is actually especially interesting in light of the case we're going to talk about in a moment, Bush versus Gore, yeah, and yeah. her role in that, that ironic, and the contradictions yeah. Yeah, yeah. there. But uh, go back to Rehnquist for a moment and her relationship with Rehnquist, which is so fascinating. I, I think we knew that they had sort of hung out and maybe dated a little, but it sounds from your book like there was actually a lot more to it than that. Yeah, a lot more. Uh, My wife, Osi, and I were looking for the love letters. Not these love letters. We were looking for the love letters between John, between her husband and herself, because we had access to these papers. So where are the love letters? Well, we finally found a box, not in her regular papers in the Library of Congress, but in her chambers in the Supreme Court. It just marked correspondence. 
And we open it up, and there are love letters, all right, between John and Sandra, but there are also 14 love letters between Bill Rehnquist and Sandra Day, as she was known back at Stanford. Rehnquist had fallen for her as a first-year law student. Uh, He'd even been to the ranch. They broke up. I think she dumped him. And then he went off to be a Supreme Court clerk. And he was lonely in Washington. He starts writing her these ever more ardent letters. And finally, one of them says, Sandy, will you marry me? When I read that, I gave a little whoop because, you know, (laughs) nobody knew that. Scoop. Scoop, (laughs) scoop. And also, they hadn't even told their own families about this. This so is, not not just the first woman on the Supreme Court, but this was the first Supreme Court romance yeah, uh, yeah. that we that yeah. know of. There was a sort of a sweet little moment when, when she does get on the court. And although the other justices did not know about the marriage proposal, they did know that there had been some something there. And uh, Harry Blackman, Justice Blackman, leans over to Rehnquist and says, now, uh, no fooling around. <laughs> well, so Rehnquist's problem was that he failed his audition with yeah. the old man, right? Yeah, yeah, what was man. his DA? What was his the name? The old man was tough, DA. And this is Sandra's father, cowboy, a very tough cowboy. And he would test the suitors by giving them fried uh, cow's testicles to eat. And uh, <laughs> Rocky think, Mountain oysters? Well, right, Rocky Mountain oysters. Alan Day, who was uh, Sandra's brother, told me that. Uh, Rehnquist flunked the table manners test with with mom, who was very much of a lady. You know, this is a long time ago. Who knows what the hell happened down in that ranch? But something did not go right because Sandra dropped Rehnquist shortly thereafter. So, Evan, you write a lot about the place that she came from, which is the Lazy Bee Ranch, which was a pretty tough place. Uh, one example that I recall from early on in the book is one of the cowboys, I can't remember his name, actually performed a root canal oh, yeah, on himself yeah. <laughs> with a hot glowing wire. Yeah. You could, they could hear the, she could hear the sizzling and see the smoke. Yeah, and smell the burning flesh. Yeah, I mean, there was no you, doctor. Yeah. 30 miles away from the nearest town. But throughout the book, you keep referring back to Lazy B yeah. and about how that shaped her character and you talk about self-reliance. Yeah. How did that work its way into her jurisprudence? Well, one thing with her clerks learned not to make excuses. She would <laughs> tell them this story that uh, she once was taken out the lunch to the Roundup and had a flat tire. And she's a 15-year-old girl. And she gets there and her dad looks at her and says, you're late. And she said, I had a flat tire. I had to change the tire. And her father says, next time, leave earlier. And that's the way it was in the ranch. You know, deal with it. And this was relevant to her jurisprudence because you had to make do with whatever you had so that if, if, the, if the windmill was broken, you had 48 hours to fix it or else the cows start dying of thirst because there's no water. And Sandra's decisions were sometimes patched together with old spare parts, one here and one there. She didn't care about the beauty of the thing. She cared about whether it worked and whether it was practical and let's do it and move on. How did she get on uh, Reagan's radar in the first place? Tell us that story. Well, partly because there weren't any other Republican women judges. The law is entirely male back in those days. Not so long ago, really, but 1980. I think of 600 federal judges, eight women, they're all Democrats. Uh, Mm -hmm. There was one other Republican uh, who was deemed to be too dull. Cornelia Kennedy was thought to be too dull. And so there wasn't much competition once you were on the list, even though she was a state intermediate court judge. She wasn't even a federal judge. 
by most lights, she was completely unprepared for the job. Her least favorite course in law school was con law. She didn't know any con law. She basically learned it the summer before. You have a great line early in the book where you talk about her confirmation hearing before the Senate. And I think you say the senators on the Judiciary Committee didn't know whether to open the door for her or or to interrogate her. <laughs> but, I mean, she couldn't get a job out of law school, right? I mean, yeah, only yeah. as a secretary or a legal assistant. Well, she, here she is. She's top of her class. Not the, the top is Rehnquist, but she's probably number three in her class. Not a single law firm in the West Coast or anywhere would even interview her for a job. She finally got a job at Gibson Dunn being interviewed for a secretary's job. But the guy asked her how her typing was. And she said middling. And she pulled out. But I I don't think she even would have been hired as a secretary. All right. Let's talk about Bush versus Gore. This was uh, a crazy time politically in the country. We all remember it. We were all working together at Newsweek. It went on and on and on. There was no script. But for lawyers... They also didn't have a script, right? They didn't know where this thing was going. And it must have been terrifying if you were on the Supreme Court and this thing ends up in your lap. So set the scene for us. Tell us how this case got to her. And then let's talk about how she dealt with it. At first, she thought it would never get to the Supreme Court. She was wrong about that. You know, we had all these hanging chads. There were the different voting irregularities and different standards for voting in these Florida counties. A tie vote, it seemed. Uh, but the Republican Secretary of State, whose name was Harris, certified a Bush victory with like a 500-vote victory. And the Gore people wanted to keep the recount going. There was a recount, and they wanted to keep that recount going in the hopes that they would win. So this bounces up to the Supreme Court once. They knock it back down to the lower courts. The Florida Supreme Court, by a 4-3 to vote, a partisan vote of Democratic Florida judges, decides that there's been an equal protection violation of, of its own kind and that the recount should go on. So the Supreme Court stops the recount. There's a stay to the recount. That effectively means that George Bush is going to be president. Now, the vote is five Republicans to stay the recount, to basically to elect Bush, and four liberals or Democrats to uh, let the recount go. It seems nakedly partisan. Okay, let me stop you right there for a second. Before we uh, do this as a cliffhanger, before we actually talk about her role in this, let's back up and talk about election night. Sandra Day O'Connor and John O'Connor, her husband, are at a election night viewing party at some friends. And they're in the basement den watching the results come in on a black and white television, eating, you know, off of their plates on their laps or whatever. Talk about what happened that night. Well, the networks declared Florida for Gore at about 8.30 p.m., so it looked like Gore was going to win. And Sandra stood up and stalked out, didn't say anything but stalked out. John, her husband, said, oh, no, we wanted to retire. We wanted to have a Republican win, Bush win, because we wanted to retire. This gets overheard and reported by none other than Newsweek magazine. Mike, yep. I, I believe uh, your name Cliff. was on that story. So I, I actually remember so this is what happened. I was the newly installed bureau chief, didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> Eleanor Cliff comes to me and she says, I got this incredible tip. I heard about this dinner party where Sandra O'Connor showed her clear displeasure about the results of the election or what she seemed to be the results at that time. 
but I can't report it. I can't be associated with this story because it'll reveal it'll yeah. reveal my source. Yeah, she had a friend. Source, yeah. She had a friend who was there. Yeah. I actually talked to El- uh, Eleanor today, and we still cannot reveal. Uh, this <laughs> I, I know this person's <laughs> name. All right, so it I get this up under my byline. So I gave the story to Isakov, and he's been I, dining I, out on this I, ever since. I, I still chuckle when I see that. I, I, I know <laughs> yeah, the story. You know, I chuckled because when I looked at the footnotes, you have it attributed to a story by me. Yeah. I, I didn't even remember this was in a story by yep. me, but yep. uh, you're on the. I knew it was Eleanor's reporting. Yep, yeah. I, I remember all this vividly. But 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 actually, <laughs> it's I, a true I, story because you actually interviewed other people who were there. I yes. think you quoted yes. someone yeah. else. Yeah, but, yeah. I, but, yeah, but you actually quote her, Sandra Day O'Connor, saying, "This is terrible. Right. This yeah. means I, it's over." Yeah. And then I'm walking sorry. out of the room. I missed. Yes, that is what I was told. That's what she yeah. said. This is that's terrible. That it's terrible. In the book, you say her explanation for this, which I think you acknowledge was a little strange credulity, was she was just upset that the networks had called Florida so early because right. then people in California might not come out to vote, as opposed to the fact that she wanted Bush to beat Gore yeah. and yeah. Um, all true <laughs> for uh, uh, politically partisan reasons. So here's more to the background and what makes this poignant and complicated, actually. That day, that same day, election day, she'd gone to see the doctor of her husband, the Alzheimer's doctor of her husband. He had Alzheimer's. And she had asked the doctor, could John be put in an experimental program to buy him some more time? So the O'Connors were thinking of retiring. This was something they were considering. And if there was a Republican president elected, they were going to at least think about it. But here's where it gets a little more complicated. They had not finally decided. They really hadn't. Uh, She liked her job. She liked being chief justice. And they were kind of on the fence about the whole thing. Ironically, now the story has become in, in various publications that this is the proof, the story that we've just told is the proof that the fix was in from the beginning and she wanted a Republican to win. The irony of all this is that by voting with the five votes to, in effect, make George Bush president, she knew that that meant that she could not retire. She could not retire. Because it would look unseemly. unseemly. It would be. And she told her family, we're not going to any cookouts at the White House. No social. They knew they were friends of the Bush family. No socializing with the Bushes. We're not retiring. Right. Because it would look bad. So the effect of voting for Bush to win meant that she could not retire. But then doesn't that leave open the possibility that she did do it for nakedly partisan reasons? (laughs) I mean, I mean, and and by the way, because this is complicated. No, no, to answer your question, no, no and no. (laughs) Okay, I know where you're going on this. (laughs) She was. Yes. Was she a pro-Republican? Yes. Yeah. And she and you, you, you do you do quote her husband's memoir or diary, I think. Yes, he can. Absolutely. He hated Gore. Hated Gore, but she didn't. She didn't like she was, his acceptance speech at the at the convention, and uh, and I don't and, think she and went to bed early. Gore. I don't think she loved Gore. I don't think she loved Bush either. That's also in his diary. I mean, she liked the Bush family. She liked H. W. She was not a particular fan of W. And later became a bit disenchanted with him. But the reason, the real reason, the thing that's driving this train, is that Sandra Day O'Connor disliked messes. And she disliked things that were going to be disruptive and messy. And her view, and we got this from Justice Ginsburg, among others, that she was looking down the road. And she saw that if the voting continued, it was going to drag on. There was a chance that Gore was going to win. And so you would have two sets of electors. 
these certified Republican electors, already certified by Harris, a slate of Gore electors. Now, if you look at the statute book, 3 U.S.C. 15, what happens if there are two slates of electors? There's actually a law that governs this. The House has one vote and the Senate has one vote. The House was Republican. The Senate was Democratic. The rules also say that if there's a tie, the tie is broken by the governor of the state where there was there was the dispute. The governor of that state's last name was Bush. It was Jeb Bush. What kind of a car wreck was that going to be in late January of 2001 if Bush's own brother is certifying his victory? She was okay, so, looking so down a couple that road. things about the uh, I mentioned the irony or the contradiction between her federalist states rights principles and the decision that the Supreme Court, the conservative majority made in that case, which was to override uh, what the Florida Supreme Court was doing uh, with a federal mandate to stop the recount. Now, that was the glaring contradiction that uh, that people pointed out at the time. You write in the book that was that one of the glaring she, contradictions, but that was one. Yeah. Yeah. That, that she kind of pared back the majority opinion there and inserted the sentence that says this actually isn't going to apply to any other cases. You're just doing it just about this case. It was it was ugly. I mean, it was ugly. That's, that's all true. One time only. The constitutional scholars hated that. She was reviled and ridiculed to this day. People yeah. are still steamed up about it. When she woke up in the morning that the case was to be announced, she said to her son, half of the country's going to hate me. She knew where this was going. Did she, she, although it was even actually worse than she thought because some of her very close friends uh, reviled her. She was, she was tortured in the papers, and uh, it was uncomfortable for her. It did, was. Did she ever have second thoughts about that vote? Yeah, uh, and she's not— oh, Yes. That, that yes. was one of the revelations in your book, Evan. I yeah. didn't know that, yeah. that she actually came to regret her role in Bush versus Gore. Yeah, she did. Now, remember, this is a human being like the rest of us. We have regrets on Tuesday and no regrets on Wednesday and then regrets again on Thursday. So it sort of depends right. which day of the week you're getting her. Her mm -hmm. posture was some, you know, get over it. She did say that once. Other times, can't we move on? She liked to say that, you know, the media did a big recount after uh, in 2001 and found that Bush would have won anyways. Uh, and that's true. I just looked it up today again, actually, uh, or my wife, Osi, who's with me, did. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's by by everything, unless you counted all the overvotes, all the undervotes, which was not going to happen, Bush was going to win anyways. Now, that's a, a rationalization. Yes, I hear that. But, but it is one that she made to make herself feel a little bit better about this. I asked her about it, and she got sad with me and said, you know, it's not, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I had regrets. But it's sort of not helpful to have regrets. This is uncharacteristic of her. She was a don't regret, move on. She knew the court had taken a hit. I looked up Gallup, and the court did take a hit. Its, uh, its approval rating went down. <clears throat> Although, interestingly, its approval rate went back up to about where it had been about two years later. And then went down again, not for Bush v. Gore reasons, but just general, the world we live in today. It sounds like you think there was a great, that there was wisdom in her decision. I do. I think it's a very painful, practical decision. It was a no-win deal. There was no good result here. I mean, suppose, you know, suppose they had let the voting go on and for some reason Gord won, then all the Republicans would be screaming bloody murder. I mean, it was going to be it was going to be ugly no matter how it turned out. 
her deal was she'd been on that ranch. They did a lot of ugly stuff. Do it. One of the things uh, you point out, just to take a little historical sweep here, is and just how long ago this was. She's uh, nominated in 81, and she's confirmed unanimously yeah. Yeah. by the Senate. Yeah. Now, today, any Supreme Court nominee goes in with lock-solid votes from the other party uh, against Taylor. In Tim fact, Obama, in fact right? the only yeah. real opposition, the real opposition to the ad was from the moral majority and Jesse Helms. Yeah, it was, there was a little Republican revolt because, you know, abortion was just coming on strong in 1980 and Jesse Helms and the rise of the right and moral majority, they put up a fuss because she, as a state legislator, she had voted to decriminalize abortion, but before Roe v. Wade, the, and so that caused a fuss. But they, the, the Reagan administration, wanted to make it go away. They did not want to have an internal fight. The White House could still have control in those days. And she was so charming. She wanted to see Jesse Helms and charm the hell out of him. And she played tennis with Senator East's wife and did things like that. The young she made it go away. The young Justice Department lawyer who went out to interview her as part of the vetting process is a former guest on Skullduggery, uh, Ken Starr. <laughs> yes, we interviewed him. He was so impressed by her. She was she was amazingly charming, and and uh, he just thought she was a... I remember John Rosa went out there with him and said, yeah, it was like 100 degrees, and she made us this cold salmon lunch, and she could just do anything. Uh, she was she was a dazzling well, you person. Spent, you spent a fair amount of time. You interviewed her a bunch I, of times. I did, I did, I did. She, you know... She had early dementia when we started this. It's worse, of course, now. Uh, she had amazing. Uh, the first night I was down there, I watched her work a room of a hundred people. Where was people. Where's that? Where are you the, talking at about? The, in Phoenix. Yeah. At uh, the Biltmore Hotel, mm-hmm. and I went to a reception, and she worked. She met, meeted, and greeted with a hundred and fifty people. You wouldn't have known anything was wrong with her. In fact, she gave a toast to she. Justice Souter came up to him. She said, "Hi, a toots," and they <laughs> held hands. Very mm-hmm. sweet. So she was, you know, she was kind of herself at first, but but I did deteriorate. I didn't get heavily into the cases with her. She wouldn't get to talk to me really anyways. I asked her about Bush v. Gore. I asked her about affirmative action. You know, she famously said, okay, I'm going to uphold affirmative action, or we are going to uphold affirmative action for another 25 years. She thought the problem might be solved by Yeah, that. this is year 13 I'm interviewing. She's going, oh, maybe I was wrong about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was, but that was, I mean, as you said, she upheld affirmative action. Her well, position right. was, her position she was. Saved, she saved she, affirmative she action. She saved it. And her position was yeah. that as long as yeah. race was not the only factor, but a Forget what the language was. Uh, she liked diversity. Factor. She was willing. She was. She bought into diversity. Some it was uncomfortable for her. You know, she hated identity politics, and she didn't love it that on campuses all these groups were forming, racial groups and minority groups. That made her uncomfortable. But she did think that higher education trained leaders, and it's got and the military. She was influenced by the military brief, which said the officer corps really has to look like America. That had a big impact on her. Law schools, you know, what what a quarter of the U.S. Senate's lawyers. And she felt, you know, if, if you didn't have affirmative action, the percentage of, of African-Americans at these top law schools was going to be very low. I mean, extremely low. And she just, the society can't do that. She was a realist. So back to my, uh, my question before about just this, how striking it is to look back at an era when a Supreme Court justice like uh, Justice O'Connor or nominee could get unanimously confirmed to where we are today in which every nomination is a pitched scorched earth battle yeah. by both sides. 
how did we get from there to where we are today? Uh, and, you know, how much of it is because of, you know, the era that Sandra O'Connor was on the on the Supreme Court? Well, she hated the incivility of today. You know, the, the, everything's a fight. Uh, one of the things she learned as a woman in a man's world was not to get into stupid fights, not to get into chest butting. And this happened all the time in the legislature. These guys would get drunk, you know, and want to pick a fight with her. And she would just walk away. Uh, she, she, she was very good about now. She did know how to stand up when, you know, when the when the drunken guy, one guy, drunken guy came after him. She he said, ah, you know, if you were a man, I'd punch you in the nose. And she said, if you were a man, you could. Uh, mm-hmm. So she knew how to stand up to people, but she 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 believed in civility. She believed in not getting into dumb fights, and 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 she was she she hated the current environment. In fact, when Obama nominated Merrick Garland, she was against holding up that nomination. Her last public statement ever was, "Oh come on, you know, <laughs> confirm them. Let's move on." That's very Sandra Day O'Connor. We'll wrap this up to let you uh, get on with your promotion and go sell a lot of books. But let me let me end with this, and I think maybe it is a bit of a positive note and get your reaction to it. It strikes me in the way that you talk about Sanjay O'Connor that there is another justice on the Supreme Court that has some of those same qualities. Um, and he happens to be someone who prepared her for her Supreme Court nomination, probably when, when a young yeah. uh, Ken Starr was doing that. You know who I'm talking about, John Roberts. Roberts. Yeah, John current. Roberts. And he also doesn't like things that are messy. Yeah. He likes decorum, and he cares about the reputation of the court, and he's an incrementalist. Do you I, see parallels I think you there? put your finger on one of the most important things of the coming months and years. The fifth vote now is John Roberts, and part of him is a conservative ideologue. Part of him is a Scalia, Alito, conservative uh, Republican, more than Justice O'Connor. But another part of him is like O'Connor, doesn't like messes, cares about the institution, willing to make some messy compromises. Think of the Affordable Care Act decision, his decision that which was very O'Connor-esque, kind of judicially hard to defend, but had the effect of trying to do what the country wanted. So that is an important part of, of the chief justice. The, let's say the O'Connor half or the O'Connor 40 percent of the chief justice. I think this is going to be a decisive issue. I mean, potentially decisive. Which, which way? Which justice Roberts, chief justice Roberts is going to show up? It is now the Roberts court. Yeah. Um, and we don't know and yet if he'll emerge as a spe- swing vote. Specifically but. on executive power, when these subpoenas start coming up, as they will, when Trump is resisting producing evidence to Congress, or possibly in an impeachment context, but in any case, Congress. And, and the emergency of executive uh, declaration power, right. to build the wall. Yep. I mean, but I yep, think all that's those things. probably the, the one most likely, yep. the earliest to come before the right. court. Right. Mike is right about that. But these sort of executive power questions, he's going to have to choose. Okay. Evan Thomas, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. The book, once again, is First, Sandra Day O'Connor, An Intimate Portrait of the First Woman Supreme Court Justice. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Evan. Thanks to Evan Thomas for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. We'll talk to you on Friday.